I've been busting for someone to ask me about the scenario of the grot. You know, like, what actually happened? <laughs> what happened? What's the grot? Or rather, what might happen to create the grot? To answer these questions, we first have to introduce you to Pat Grant. Because I grew up in Adelaide, so I want to say Pat Grant, but I think it should be Pat Grant because Grant. he comes from New South Wales. Right? Dr. Pat Grant is a graphic novelist who teaches in the School of Design at the University of Technology, Sydney. But before he was a member of a faculty, he was a student and was the type of student we're all very familiar with. I was like a enviro convener as a student activist. So I was involved in like campus sort of enviro collective and the Sean Network, which was a student environment activist network. That was kind of the time of the campaigns were Tarkine. I'm Bob and I'm here in front of Rest Point Casino in Hobart where the Tasmanian miners are holding their congress. They're talking about the Tarkine. Tarkine is Australia's largest temperate rainforest. John Howard protected it from logging back in 2004. Lake Cowell, New South Wales. My name's Neville Chappie Williams. I am a traditional owner of the Lake Cowell area. I came here today to fly over Lake Cowell and to witness the destruction that is happening to our dreaming place. Uh, and it was refugee. So we, we kind of spent a lot of time doing uh, refugee stuff. So it was the time of the big convergences on the... Woomera Detention Centre and the Baxter Detention Centre. At that time they started protesting here just outside the gates and there has the confrontation as we are now. David, can you tell us what brought this on? Protesting against the keeping of detainees in Woomera, talking about Australia's Indigenous policies, about its immigration policy, nuclear policy, things like that. But tonight was... And I was, I was so hopeless. <laughs> well, my, my, my contribution was always to, you know, make my way to the kitchen and just do work that made sense to me. And then I, I kind of went, went from that into working in food co-ops. So I've, I've worked in a bunch of different food co-ops throughout my 20s. I've kind of been adjacent to the enviro sort of world most of my life. I do remember when I decided that my, my job was to be an artist and not to be an activist. <laughs> It was at like a Students of Sustainability conference. I had this sort of epiphany that I, I was like, oh, the thing that I can do really well is tell stories and the movement needs that. And so I have to go all in on that sort of realisation. Reframed a lot of my decision making over the next couple of years. All the artwork I do is political and is about, for me, the big issues of the time. But I try and also sort of think about it as pop culture as well. That's, got, that's the sort of framework for thinking about what, what kind of stories I want to tell. They have to be fun and entertaining and silly, and, but they also have to help me kind of understand the things that are troubling me about the world around me. That's really good. As a reader, at least for me, I can see the evolution of where your concern was when you go from blue into the grot. Blue, which is my first book, I sort of see it as like a exploration of coastal culture and xenophobia. That came because I had a first-hand encounter at the Cronulla Riot and I felt like that gave me some sort of special 
story to tell. I knew coastal culture. I'd always been deeply troubled by it. And so that book kind of was written in three weeks, but it was sort of, there was, you know, six years of uh, processing going on, uh, you know, seeing uh, seeing that the kind of ugliness of, of the, that, I, that, I, that I'd sort of discovered after the Cronulla riot. And of course, this conversation was happening in the public intensely, this sort of, it's like the nexus of Australian identity and, and this sort of paranoia about refugees. Can I ask what was the experience of the Cronulla riots or is it not really something you want to talk about? Uh, it's not a fantastic sort of ripping yarn sort of story. I just I, I just arrived back from a trip overseas and we were at we're at this sort of punk DIY festival in Wollongong and we ended up in Cronulla on the drive home and we didn't we didn't realize that this event was happening. Everyone else in the country knew but we sort of stumbled into it and it, it was so ugly, so so obviously such an ugly sort of scene that we we kind of like. I think we 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 turned around and went home as soon as some like some Nazis handed us some propaganda. Oh, <laughs> far out! Yeah. Oh my god. So, yeah. For our international listeners, the Cronulla riots were a series of racist conflicts in the southern beach suburbs of Sydney in 2005, fueled by race baiting media coverage of an altercation between eight Middle Eastern men and two white surf lifesavers on Cronulla Beach. Rioters turned violent. A content warning here. This segment discusses white supremacists and includes depictions of violent racism. If you're not up to listening to that today, you can skip the next four minutes. We got here around mid-morning, uh, but people have been drinking uh, for, for hours already. There was certainly a lot of uh, tension in the crowd, so I'd walked into, a, into a, a mob situation that the police did not have control of. Out of the corner of my eye, I see this guy, and he's running for his life. He just got surrounded around the back of it uh, by probably about 20 guys, smashing him in the head with bottles and, and just punching him in the head. This is wrong. This, this, how's this going to end? This is just going to continue. Uh, and, you know, and at that point, you're thinking, well, the best thing I can do is take photos. I mean, I'm bearing witness to something here that's, that is a turning point. It was a, a ferocious uh, moment. It was um, humiliating as an Australian to watch. Yeah. It was like, it felt like a weird Australia Day celebration and then we got some swastika stickers handed <gasps> to us and then we realised how drunk everyone was and then we were like, okay, yeah. Yeah. This is, this is not for us. And then, and then in... In the time between us getting in the car and getting home, it just became the media event that everyone else experienced. And so that was kind of weird and interesting, seeing how, seeing it all happen on the TV after after we were just there. Yeah, and that kind of weird sensation of like, oh, that that's what that was. Okay, when you then realise. Yeah, do you know, like speaking of activism, it was that, you know, do you ever do that thing where you're at a rally and then you come home and watch the rally? on TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, instead of being this this big, holistic sort of uh, ex- experience, it's just like the ugliest, most hysterical moment. And so, yeah, my experience of the Cronulla riot was gentler but um, more holistic. And we actually, we talked to all these people. It was almost like we were anthropologists, but, you know, because we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> so what, what are you guys doing here? Yeah. I felt like I had special access because of, of this sort of, accident and so uh, uh, it became my my thing to write about for quite a, quite a long time 
went away and worked for food co-ops. What was the driving factor of you coming back to activism again? I, I felt like I was at risk of burning out and falling into a pit of despair. And I, I had some people who are older than me mm-hmm. who I'd seen trying to go through that cycle too many times. I think I went into a time of self-preservation. I, I had this intuitive sense that I, I couldn't be like an all-in activist for all of my life. And so I kind of focused on art making and teaching and parenthood. <laughs> and so now I feel like it's it's time, you know, it's time for me to start um, contributing again. And I, I also feel like I've learned a lot of useful skills that I can contribute now that I probably didn't have when I was a, a younger activist. So yeah, I, and I, I, easing is the uh, appropriate word because I, it's pretty difficult going into like emergency activist mode when you've got like little kids around. I'm happy to talk about that actually, about my failures as an activist. There was a big sort of community meeting about developing like a, an activist strategy and, and I bumped out, I was at, I, I kind of just, I went along and I had this feeling of dread in from, that was just sort of like this weird, like a kind of trauma from from being in my early 20s and being a, 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 an activist. And I kept bumping into people who I knew from that time who were also, who were also there and they also had this sort of haggard like, like look of fear, like they wanted to... Uh, just, just kind of going back into like the complexity of uh, you know community organising. It's, it's a bit scary, but it's been fun. It's been we've done some fun stuff. You talk about how storytelling is really like the main game for you. Are there any stories, particularly to do with climate change, that get you inspired or excited at the moment? Yes. And look, for me, for me, the things that I, I, I really get excited about just how creative and science fiction-esque some of the visions of the future just have to be now. And I, I have to be very careful to say that I'm not like a technological optimist with my thinking about the future or about, about climate change. I'm, you know, like I'm super suspicious of technology, like I think a lot of people in the, in the climate movement are. But like, a, like, like Tim Flannery talking about seaweed. Yeah. And while we don't have a clip of Tim Flannery, here's Damon Gamow from the documentary 2040. Until recently, large seaweed forests ran along many of the world's coastlines. They provided habitats for marine life, local food and jobs, and made for terrific fake beards. But with most of the heat from global warming going into our oceans, much of this seaweed has been wiped out including 95% of kelp along the east coast of Tasmania. But there is a solution. Scientists have discovered a way to regenerate the seaweeds. Seaweeds actually draw down carbon dioxide from the ocean waters and they restore the alkalinity of the ocean that enables shellfish and other creatures to thrive. Like, I, I don't necessarily have the expertise to critique that as a, like an academic or to, or, to, or to speak about the truth or the effectiveness of, uh, of this thing, but, but just the way, the way someone can describe, like, this outrageous sort of Mad Maxi science fiction sort of setup, people making these sort of 
hempen structures out in the ocean and uh, and and growing like seaweed and r- running these sort of automated aquaculture you know setups and then sinking that seaweed to a you know to the deep ocean and it, it reminds me of uh, like a Neil Stevenson novel which uh, which you know like it's it's utterly it's fascinating and, and interesting and I love I love how creative. We all have to be now, you know, we're like fixing this problem or, or, or surviving is going to require like every, every scrap of creativity we have. As far as storytelling goes, I think storytelling is done about 1% of the job it needs to do to helping us understand climate change. And helping us understand how what what the future might look like, and and how we might actually survive, and how we might thrive, and how we might be happy. You know, the, the, all all of these things are, are kind of like they're pictures that science can't necessarily paint. One of the things that's so difficult about the politics of climate change is that people can't imagine the day to day reality of the futures that are being proposed the bad ones as well as the good ones. And that's what storytellers can bring to the climate movement is, is helping people understand what happiness looks like in, in 2100. How does humor work after ecosystems collapse? You know, like, like all of these things are necessary. My prediction is that all, all fiction is going to become climate fiction pretty soon. As a species, we're all going to have to turn all of our resources to this problem and storytellers don't get out of that. And that brings us back to The Grot, Pat's second novel. How does it fit into the mantle of responsibility that Pat feels as an activist turned storyteller? But first, what's it about? I've been busting for someone to ask me about the scenario of The Grot. You know, like, what actually happened? (laughs) What's the world? The book is sort of set in a future Australia, somewhere in the north of Australia. It doesn't all click together with a clear rationale, but my idea was that um, ocean levels had risen and there'd been some massive energy crisis. All of the things that fossil fuels provide for us have kind of fallen away and humans are, are scrambling to, to figure out how to be prosperous and how to, how to be well-fed and how to get by. I feel like I, 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 I always get so frustrated with people who are projecting what life's going to be like as the climate warms and things get hairy and they kind of just go straight from like leave it to beaver to the road that's just so lazy because there's 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 this sort of if we know anything about like uh ecological problems is is that they sort of happen in gradations you know there's this there's this long sort of smear of history I agree with Pat about how the despairing apocalyptic depiction of climate change is a lazy form of storytelling. I would say it's more than that. What I would call the dominant Hollywood stories that assume climate collapse is inevitable enables narratives of ecofascism. They are fun thrillers, but if your only visions of a changed climate are ones of inevitable and extreme violence, how does anyone actually learn to de-escalate the situation? It's something I'm interested in. So if you have expertise in the area, please reach out. I'm kind of interested in this sort of period where the abundance is over, but we've still got this massive population. 
I was thinking about like say you're a you're a cotton farmer and you have a you know you have a, a standard agri business and suddenly uh, you can't get your fertilizers suddenly you can't get your roundup which you've been spraying like flagrantly on your on your crops for your entire life and so suddenly like your role in society is to produce fiber but uh like what do you do and so I just imagine like we immediately start to revert back to the way things might have been done in the early 1800s so you go okay I'm gonna buy some sheep I'm gonna make wool and that wool's gonna be shipped to to the city and tailors are gonna start making wool suits again that's helping me understand how the fashion works in the world you know like there's a lot of people who are wearing tailored suits but there's also like kids walking around with like team building exercise t-shirts from from you know the world we live in today Eve's seen firsthand the amount of waste from single-use textiles. And that's just from what gets donated to Reverse Garbage, where she works in Sydney. Likewise, I worked at a charity op shop chain in Melbourne, and seeing this otherwise forgotten, disposed of, or undervalued commodity stream as the height of fashion is a cool element to Pat's world building. But getting away from the textiles of the world, we promised you a story about the Grot. The story is about these these two brothers, and they're they're heading north to start a business. What did you, were you confused by the <laughs> by all the like algae and mycology and brewing and? St- I was about to ask you about all the fermentation. Yeah. <laughs> so this is another this is another theory I have. We are just so obsessed with technology, and we fetishize innovation so intensely, for better and for worse. But what happens when we don't have fossil fuels and all of the things that that are built upon fossil fuel technology and and I kind of had this idea okay so the the era of fossil fuels might also be thought about as the era of sterilization where most of the science we do most of the industrial processes we use where we we spend a lot of time and energy and chemicals making things clean making sure that there's Things you know, there's no life growing on our uh, our surfaces and on our our implements and on our our fabrics. I read somewhere that we really don't know a lot about most bacteria because we don't know how to grow it. We can only grow a very small percentage of uh, of the bacteria that exists. So that idea got into my head, and I was like, okay, so what if innovation in this world is all about things that grow? Suddenly, we've changed our focus to this vast and rich microbial world and mycological world and so the premise of the book is that there's a there's an algae that's been discovered it has a potential to do a lot of the things that oil did for us but nobody knows how to grow it yet and so for this finite period if you can get some of this stuff every venture capitalist in this disgusting new world is going to want to buy it from you this place where this algae has been discovered has become like a gold rush sort of environment, this sort of gross, disgusting, slimy, sweaty boom town. And like all gold rush environments, it's uh, full of con artists. And that is the the engine of the story is that uh, you're wondering whether or not these kids are going to get conned. Speaking of cons... The, the boys themselves are uh, uh, yogurt manufacturers. I, I sort of thought that... In a world where we didn't have the uh, industrial sort of artifices to to create the medicines that we used to rely on, a bunch of uh, swindlers and scoundrels would step in and start brewing up things that might work as medicine. 
As we started using them with uh, our family, specifically with our little kids, and saw how, how fast they worked and how easy it was to be able to help all of our health, it was awesome. We fell in love with them. Now when my wife and I talk about the oils, it's like, what did we do before the oils? Just make a buck out of anyone who's willing to give it a go by the sounds well, of it is how yeah, I read that's it. That's kind of how medicine was, right? Up until like we uh, created controlled environments, figured out how to collect rigorous data, like medicine was snake oil. But care was better. Care was holistic in a way that it's not now. I do like to think about this sort of transition as, you know, there, there are good things and, and bad things. And it's still, I'm still not sure whether these, whether this yogurt business that they're going to set up is a snake oil business or the real deal. Yeah. Future books might help me figure that out. You said it's like a boom town. In this world, inequality's really stark in it. Is there like those sort of gated communities in your head where the ecosystem is more sound and that sort of thing? Ah, the classic, uh, that's a fantastic sci-fi trope that I haven't even considered. I need to get to Elysium. Whoever has this has the power to override their whole system. The apocalypse with a utopia sort of uh, housed within. I don't know. I, d I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think there's a there's a place where the landscape isn't traumatized. I think that might just be one of the rules of the world. But uh, but the inequality that again that again came from that kind of line of thinking with the cotton farmer where you're like. Okay, you're you're in the transport business. You're you know you you service to society's freight and logistics, and suddenly you can't get petrol, and suddenly you can't fix your uh, machines. What do you do? You start hoarding bicycles and the best quality, highly engineered cycling equipment manufactured. You jerry rig your machines so that they run on human power. It's utopian and dystopian at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> the idea sounds so great, but I just can't see it happening without uh, slavery or indentured servitude or some kind of dreadful class stratification happening. The book opens and the, the main characters, the mum sort of sitting inside an old Suzuki Vitara, jerry-rigged to be peddled by four humans. The two boys are sitting on top and there's like a labourers, I guess, you know, sitting pushing the pedals. And you can imagine it's creaky and slow and takes ages to get anywhere. Eve here with a quick dive into mobility justice, a term for the disparity and equality of access to transport and mobility. The Grot builds a world that's pretty consistent with climate predictions in a lot of ways, and bikes are a great example of it. In the Grot, we see a version of bikes that's recognisable in the politics of bikes right now, only much more extreme. Mobility justice, or the ability to freely move through a society, has been pedal-powered for over a century. From Black Lives Matter to the suffragettes, the access to such cheap and agile transport is a critical source of social movement. In the grot, bikes have outlived the fossil fuel industry and are now the only source of power. They are the sole means for anyone to get to or from the grot and thereby any chance of social progression. But as the only form of mobility at scale, they are also sources of oppression and exploitation. 
literally faceless characters provide pedal power to the upper classes. Just like today, bikes are a means of gaining and exercising power. As a cyclist myself, I like how this dichotomy is exaggerated in Pat's world. I go solo bike touring, where I pack my camping gear and head off an adventure alone. It's an addictive freedom, knowing that I can just set off and fix my bike myself if something goes wrong. What I didn't realize when I set off to the mountains for the first time was that I was doing a feminist act. My fun was too much for the men around me. I was screamed at from car windows. Men would slow down and ask me what I was doing out here by myself and pointedly ask if I needed a place to sleep. One man actually snatched my bike off me and demanded I justify why I was qualified to progress. Don't worry, I laughed at him and got my bike back and went on my way. I mean, oh my God. So in the grot, Pat has taken parts of what is latent in our society and made it more extreme. It's consistent with what the science tells us about what to expect from a business-as-usual climate pathway. My favourite part of the book is, well, one of my favourite parts is this um, punk band section. A teen hangout, really, but the punk band has to run on pedal power, so... Yes. So that to so they're all pedaling and playing at the same time. That that to, that to me is the more utopian side of things, where the you know it's sort of this kind of DIY like let's power our own punk band, and I love the idea of this angry punk band getting angrier as they ride and get shorter breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with this sort of decentralized. Yeah, I, li- I like that that youth scene. I, I thought that that would maybe somewhere I would have liked to hang out when I was uh, nineteen. Yeah, I did enjoy the Kevin 07 t-shirt as well. (laughs) (laughs) Already a relic. Um, Okay. What did you think of the book? Did you like, what was your experience reading it? I'm not going to spoil it for the listener, but there's a scene towards the end where something happens to one of the key characters and then you go through and talk about the stories of all these other different characters Uh, that you haven't seen in the city. And you have like this kind of, yeah, the the classic con storyline and then towards the end it's like you paint the picture of the biggest city and you're like, it's pretty devastating, really, that bit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's even tough for me to, um, to, to read that section, that sort of coda. And, uh, and it really, it's really like the trying to hammer home what kind of place these characters have found themselves in with no money and no one to really look after them. So one of the things that happens when you draw comics and you're silly enough to draw a comic in a crowded city is that you just have to draw thousands of strangers, constant scenes where these people walking through town and there's just extras, extras sort of like, and I can't just play, pay some gooner like a like hundred bucks to show up for the day. I have to make them up, you know, like, and it's actually impossible, you, you know, like if you try and make it up, they all just seem like these weird, like formless nobodies. So I started just drawing people I knew. And uh, that was simply a solution to the problem that was in front of me on any on any given day. I just, I realized how much this was a meditation on what the day-to-day life of my loved ones might be. Like there's a particularly distressing drawing for me where I drew my niece and my nephew and my son. Mm. And they're like little like street kids, like street orphans. Yeah. And they've, uh, they've just pinched, they've just pinched some fruit. 
and my son is sort of standing there naked with some sort of skin disease, you know, and uh, and he's just trying to get he's just trying to get in on the action, you know, like he's, he's trying to get some banana, and uh, oh man, it's uh, it's a distressing drawing, you know, it's a real, it's really tough every time every time I see it, but yeah, like I mean, every page has someone I know sort of in the background, just trying to get by. Uh, yeah, and so for me, it's been this kind of uh, this this personal meditation on on uh, on what the future could be and how grim it could get or how uh, how how great it could be too. And in the grot, Pat shows both these sides of human nature. In a world that may seem at first glance to be bizarre and unrecognisable, with its muddy world and strange algae that can turn swamp waiters into millionaires. But look closer and you'll see some glimmers of the grot surrounding us now. The economic dislocation of a cohort of cycle-bound workers, a growing interest with the biological and even fungal solutions to some aspects of the climate crisis, You'll see in the grot desperate grifters and conmen, but also those still willing and eager to trust. Callous violence and a love of family. You can read the grot in total from Pat's site, patgrantart.com. You can also get the book in a physical copy there. And thank you to Pat Grant for his ruminations and thoughts on his works The Grot, Blue, his history in climate activism, and thoughts, fears, and hopes for the future. Thank you to host and interviewer Eve Brennan, producer Lloyd Richards, who also provided music for this episode, production assistance and leveling from Sean Marsh, and additional music from Tom Day and Pushka. I'm Mark Spencer, publisher of The Climactic Collective. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Artbreaker. We love getting reviews and hearing your feedback. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd greatly appreciate it if you'd share it with a friend. You have been listening to a podcast on the Climactic Collective, the podcast network for Australia's climate community. To find out more about us and all the shows on the network, visit climactic.com.au. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.